Media bias. It's on display in a way that would make Marshall McLuhan's head spin. And by the way, if you don't know who Marshall McLuhan is, stand by because you need to know about this prophetic voice from the 1960s. But let's start at the top. I've always known there has been a liberal bias in America's newsrooms. I've spent decades in the for-profit, secular, major market news biz. But the stuff we're seeing right now is just over-the-top nuts. As you've likely noticed, this prejudice has now infected Fox News. And I'll explain that in just a bit. But as we explore media bias in this important podcast, I ask you this question. What is it that Trump's legal team has to do in order to prove election fraud? The media continually says, we want evidence. Evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. This is, of course, concerning these fraud allegations coming forth involving this year's campaign. Friends, this is ridiculous. Although such evidence is absolutely important in criminal cases, complaints such as those filed by the president and his team need only to show what's known as a preponderance of the evidence. And by the way, everyone in the media knows this. Everyone knows this. What Trump's team has revealed is the absolute lowest burden of proof. Now, for those of you who work in law, you know what I'm talking about. I had to do a little research on this just to get myself up to speed, so I would bring forth the facts for you on Hidden Headlines. First, the highest standard the law imposes is beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the highest. Second, clear and convincing evidence. That's an elevated standard that requires a judge or a jury in order to have substantial assurance that the allegations are correct. And then there is the preponderance of evidence. Now, this is the lowest standard. But in this particular case, the Trump team only has to prove a preponderance of evidence to win in a court of law. And again, the media knows this, but they're playing their audience like useful idiots. They won't admit to it, but they know it. Again, I believe it's because dark forces on the left are in control of the mediums that are in turn in control with the message. This is going to be one heck of a podcast. I thank you for being here. Hidden Headlines, Faith, Family, Freedom. Thanks for joining me in episode 75. I'm Brian Sussman. More on me at briansussman.com. President Trump entertained 1.1 million supporters at events from Labor Day until the election. Joe Biden, less than 2,000. Some of Joe's events were so pathetic that it caused me to say aloud, I've seen more people at a hobo fight. <laughs> Actually, I've never seen a hobo fight, but it sounded funny because his campaign was funny. Actually, it was pathetically funny. But seriously, Trump's events this year were even bigger than in 2016. Plus, he contracted the COVID, which kept him out of commission for a couple of weeks at a very critical time. Now, here in San Francisco, arguably the most liberal county city in the United States of America, 
I was hard pressed to find a Biden bumper sticker. You had to look really hard. When Hillary was running, Biden, excuse me, Hillary bumper stickers everywhere. Everywhere. Hillary placards in windows of condos everywhere. When Obama was running, same thing. But this time around, virtually nothing. Because there was no enthusiasm for this candidate. And by the way, I believe when it's all sorted out, well, I wouldn't be surprised if Trump won California. And by the way, I was watching Fox News like some of you on election night. And this is where I knew some sort of fix was in. I've been watching and covering elections for decades now. After the polls closed with only 1% of the vote, the Fox News desk, the decision desk, gave the race to Biden. It was incredible. But back to the campaign. President Trump had car parades. Some of you probably participated. He had truck parades. He had boat parades, horse parades. None of these sanctioned by his campaign. Thousands and thousands of people. He had parades at events in Beverly Hills. Biden tried a car parade once and it failed miserably. President Trump is popular because he's the first politician in our lifetime to do what he said he was going to do. He created the greatest economy in the world ever with the highest stock market ever, more than 60% up since he won the 2016 election. The highest national GDP, well over $20 trillion and some of the lowest unemployment numbers in history. And now President Trump is overseeing the greatest recovery. It's the greatest recovery ever with the GDP increase in Q3, quarter three, third quarter of more than 30%. I don't know if that'll ever be matched again. And during this same time, what was Biden preaching? Higher taxes, longer, longer stupid COVID shutdowns, kids home from school. Did he ever condemn Black Lives Matter? No. The Antifa riots? No. The destruction of so many cities? No. So many people harmed, hurt, and more? No. President Trump set the record for the most votes ever cast for a sitting president. 73 million. And he lost? That's before the real count is to be revealed after this cheating scandal is busted open. And I hope you're praying, and I know you're praying and fasting for this. On election night, he broke Obama's record of 69 million from 2008, and he lost? That's likely why the results from five different states simultaneously stopped. You were watching this. I was watching this. I thought, well, maybe maybe they're doing this because the polls in California haven't closed yet, and they don't want to in any way influence what's happening on the West Coast. I don't know. I was scratching my head. I did not realize that there was widespread, unbelievable cheating going on behind the scenes. You see, what was happening is the defrauders were not prepared for the landslide that Trump was engaged in, and they had to ramp up the manipulation. You know, today there are literally hundreds of affidavits filed under penalty of perjury. These are brave patriots who have stepped forward and, oh, God, I pray you'll protect these individuals. 
These are people that declared that. I've got a long list, but let me just give you a handful. Dead people voted with the indication of fraud. Ballots were destroyed intentionally with the intention of fraud. Many people voted more than once in multiple states where they were ineligible to vote with the intention of fraud. Batches of ballots were scanned multiple times into the tabulators with intention of fraud. Ballots were lost, oh my goodness, lost in predominantly Trump precincts and then found after audits with the intention of fraud. Hundreds of thousands of suspicious ballots, many of them 96% up to 100% for Biden, were dumped into the count in the wee hours of the morning after the election day in swing states. And the counting had been stopped with the intention of fraud. And this is before we even get into the evidence regarding the Dominion voting systems. And now look what's happening. You just mention voter fraud on social media and you're tagged with the disclaimer. Your reach is throttled back. You're placed in timeout. Or in some cases, you're outright banned. You'd think this would trouble your seemingly reasonable Biden-supporting friend. But it doesn't. It doesn't. Likely because of a groupthink process that has happened. It's, it's group think peer pressure. Just what the leftist leaders want. Group think peer pressure. And now big tech, tech companies are openly censoring. And popular viewpoints are being deleted. Supposedly for violating community guidelines. And by the way, all the TV networks, all the newspapers, all rely on Facebook and Twitter especially. Independent fact finders rely on Facebook and Twitter to get their message out as well. But the message is being perverted by those who own these mediums. And of course, there's never a detailed explanation of why companies like YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, etc., Delete user-generated pages, and there's never a reasonable way to appeal for the reinstitution of these pages. It's their game, and they own it lock, stock, and barrel. This is the type of censorship. It's a for-profit, high-tech, Soviet-style propaganda machine censorship. Now, one would think, oh, there's going to be massive declines in viewership, collapsing stock prices, a revolt of angry shareholders. Um, I hate to disappoint you, but I don't think so, because Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, these are global enterprises. If some of us here in America revolt and find another platform, it's really not going to hurt their bottom line now. Maybe a little different with Fox News. Yes, Fox News is seen the world over. But as we're finding out, more and more conservatives had said, screw you, Fox. And they moved over to platforms like One America News or Newsmax. And this could hurt Fox News's bottom line. And quite frankly, I hope it will. The problem with Fox News is very simple, friends. You want to know? In 2019, their ownership changed. Rupert Murdoch founded Fox owned Fox, Lock, Stock, and Barrel. He founded them in 1996. 
Rupert Murdoch is hardly, hardly a conservative guy. He's a businessman. He's a businessman who saw a niche, a niche, if you will. He saw an opportunity because conservatives wanted their own news channel. And so he said, wow, ding, 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 cha-ching, moneymaker. And he, he created the Fox News Network. All conservative lineup, 1996. And it was groundbreaking, breathtaking, and very, very profitable. Again, he's a businessman. Well, look what happened. In 2019, guess who became the owner? Disney. I contend that's what's happening at Fox News. Just one man's opinion, but Disney? They certainly have their own agenda. But getting back to this, this groupthink, getting back to this peer pressure, getting back to this Soviet-style propaganda machine which we're seeing right now, there's something else going on. In America, we have a social, political, media climate that is likely to bring about the rise of far more insidious and dangerous censorship. Self-censorship. Let me describe what I mean. I'll go to the Cambridge Dictionary for you. Cambridge Dictionary defines self-censorship this way. Control of what you say or do in order to avoid annoying or offending others, but without being told officially that such control is necessary. Friends, this is exactly what we're seeing right now. And, and you know it. It's happening with your friends, with your neighbors, with your colleagues, business partners, and even, sadly, family members and fellow members of your faith. In other words, self-censorship is voluntarily silencing oneself out of a fear of inefficial reprisal. That reprisal can come in many forms. But at its most fundamental, it involves the fear of what others will think of you or say to you if they don't like what you hear. This is why China has a very rigid culture. For those of you who have traveled to China, you know exactly what I'm talking about. By the way, every police officer in China can judge anyone on the spot for their thoughts. And if their thoughts are deemed to be offensive or counterculture, they will immediately be given a ticket and that ticket demands they show up in a re-education camp. No jury, no judge, no trial, boom. And that same sort of thing in an odd sort of scary way is happening in the United States today. This form of censorship is, is taking hold. And it's the result of fear, the fear that individuals have of upsetting the apple cart, upsetting their self-righteous neighbors, friends, etc. It's the fear that anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of public opinion and in the court of political correctness. It's the fear that just by voicing your opinion on something in the streets, you risk being attacked by black clad thugs or physically being removed from a restaurant or harassed when conducting simply the ordinary affairs of life.
George Orwell wrote the book Animal Farm. He was a British citizen, and he was very concerned about self-censorship at the conclusion of World War II. When he sought to publish his book Animal Farm, which he wrote, by the way, during the war as, as a metaphorical critique of Soviet society, he was rejected by a whole bunch of publishers who were afraid to offend the prevailing sentiment of the time that Russia, the USSR, shouldn't be criticized for fear of instigating some sort of diplomatic rift with the UK. Now, just to be clear, publishers and editors were not ordered by the law to not criticize the USSR, but they did so as to not offend the political establishment and the popular sentiment at the time. And to this, Orwell penned an introduction to Animal Farm, explaining the effects of self-censorship on a free society. This short letter entitled Freedom of the Press really and truly accurately describes the situation we are faced with today. Listen to this. Quote, The chief danger to freedom of thought and speech at this moment is not the direct interference of any political body. If publishers and editors exert themselves to keep certain topics out of print, it is not because they are frightened of prosecution, but because they are frightened of public opinion. In this country, intellectual cowardice is the worst enemy a writer or journalist has to face. And that fact does not seem to me to have had the discussion it deserves. Wow. Orwell continues. He says, unpopular ideas can be silenced and inconvenient facts kept in the dark without any need for an official ban. So far as the daily newspapers go, this is easy to understand. The British press is extremely centralized and most of it is owned by wealthy men who have every motive to be dishonest on certain important topics. But the same kind of veiled censorship also operates in books and periodicals, as well as in plays and films and radio. At any given moment, there is an orthodoxy, a body of ideas which it is assumed that all right-thinking people will accept without question. Anyone who challenges the prevailing orthodoxy finds himself silenced with surprising effectiveness. A genuinely unfashionable opinion is almost never given a fair hearing, either in the popular press or in the highbrow periodicals. It's George Orwell. That was written in the 1960s. You know, this is just what the evil masterminds want. They want the influences of peer pressure and commercial pressures to do more to silence dissent than any official decree of censorship could possibly accomplish from the government. Now, here's another author. This is E.B. White. E.B. White wrote, for example, Charlotte's Web and Stuart Libble, Little, Stuart Little. While speaking on the importance of freedom of the press, he spoke of the cultural importance of having many independent viewpoints and fearless news organizations to profess a wide range of ideas. 
So here's what he said. He wrote this in the 1970s. As long as there are many owners, each pursuing his own brand of truth, we the people have the opportunity to arrive at the truth and to dwell in the light. The multiplicity of ownership is crucial. It's only when there are a few owners or, as in a government-controlled press, one owner that the truth becomes elusive and the light fails. Another prophetic statement. Because today there are only a handful at best, a handful of owners at best controlling the movies, the TVs, the cable, satellite. Two companies own most of the radio stations in America. And then there's the digital media. Own lock, stock, and barrel. The shareholders of Twitter, Facebook, and Google. It's absolutely stunning to think of how far we've come. And it's stunning to realize how just a handful of individuals and corporations are controlling the mediums and therefore controlling the way society thinks. The New York Post is the fourth largest newspaper in the United States. It's read all over the world. It was founded in 1801 by Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers. And given the success of the Broadway show Hamilton, which is fantastic, all the lefties who like Hamilton, you'd think they'd ban Hamilton because he founded he founded the New York Post, which is now a right-wing tabloid. But again, it's read all over the world. You'd think they would be in for the banning of this publication. And think about this. The Post was purchased by Rupert Murdoch in 1976. And again, it is definitely right-wing. And it is a tabloid, and there is some sensationalism. But it everyone knows this. Everyone in the biz knows this. They have some very solid reporters, very solid opinion writers. They have great editors. And they are capable of real journalism. Well, a couple months ago, as you know, the paper published on its cover what it's, it heralded as a blockbuster scoop, smoking gun evidence, in its words, of emails purportedly showing that Joe Biden's son, Hunter, traded on his father's position by securing favors from the then vice president to benefit a Ukrainian energy company called Burisma. And of course, Hunter Biden, completely unqualified in this arena, was paid $50,000 each month to sit on the board of Burisma. Now, the Biden campaign denies any such meeting or favors ever occurred, but everyone knows it did. Even those who are critical of the New York Post story know that this took place. He was on the board. He was unqualified. He's making $50,000 a year while his father is vice president of the United States. Now, these emails, these emails, if authenticated, provide new details and corroboration of a story that's long been known. Hunter was paid very large monthly sums by Burisma. His dad was vice president. His dad was using the force of the U.S. government to influence Ukraine's internal affairs. This, This is not to be done. This is not kosher. 
Now, the Post's explanation of how these documents were obtained is where they received criticism from the rest of the media. They claim that Hunter Biden indefinitely left a laptop containing these emails at a repair store, and the store's owner, alarmed by the corruption they revealed, gave the materials and the hard drive first to the FBI and then to Rudy Giuliani. Well, we're at a divide. The Post says they're genuine, but the rest of the media says no. And as a result, an otherwise newsworthy story has been trashed. And the Post, the New York Post, for all its longevity, for all its power, for all its influence, for all its success, ran smack into two entities that put the kibosh on its work, Facebook and Twitter. Almost immediately upon the publication of this story, and they published this story during a presidential campaign, and the media at large was banking on Joe to beat Trump. Almost immediately upon publication, pro-Biden journalists created a climate of extreme hostility and suppression towards the New York Post story. Making it clear on Facebook and Twitter that any journalist who even mentioned the story, even mentioned it, would be roundly criticized. Just two hours after the New York Post posted this story online, Facebook intervened. Two hours. The company dispatched a lifelong Democrat Party operative who now works for Facebook. His name's Andy Stone. He was previously a communications director for California Democratic Senator Barbara Boxer. So he worked for Boxer. He's worked in the past for other Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee people. He's had many D.C. Democratic jobs. So this was a Democrat hack. They put him on the case to announce that Facebook was, quote, reducing the article's distribution on Facebook's platform. In other words, they were going to tinker with the algorithms to suppress the ability of users to discuss or share the news article. And by the way, Facebook didn't even try to hide their contempt for this particular article. In an announcement, this guy Andy Stone snidely remarked, I will intentionally not link to the New York Post. And Twitter's suspension efforts went even beyond Facebook. They entirely banned all users' ability to share the New York Post article. It's amazing. Earlier in the day, those who attempted to link the New York Post story were either publicly or privately receiving a message, very cryptic message, that just said error. Error. You tried to share the story, link to the story, error. Then later in the afternoon, Twitter changed the message from error to saying that the company judged the contents of these particular links, that would be the New York Post story, to be, quote, potentially harmful. And this is even more astonishing and, quite frankly, even more troubling. Twitter locked the account of the New York Post, fourth largest newspaper in the country, read around the world. Twitter locked the account of the New York Post and banned the paper from posting any content all day. 
In fact, they didn't unlock the account until the next morning. Marshall McLuhan was a visionary. He was far ahead of his time. He was a Canadian, a philosopher, a professor, but he was really, more than anything else, a communications theorist. There was a book that came out in the 70s. It was entitled, The Medium is the Message. The Medium is the Message. What does that mean? Well, it means that the way we send and receive information is more important than the information itself. The medium is the actual message. For example, when the newspapers first began, you had people in rural areas of the country finally able to go into town, purchase a newspaper, and they could read what others were thinking. They could read what, for example, their representatives in Washington, D.C. were doing. The medium became the message to unify people. When the telegraph came forth, you could now talk to people in real time in other parts of the United States, whereas before that was actually absolutely impossible. Then came the telephone. Oh my gosh, people were able to talk to each other in real time and have multiple conversations with people in other parts of the country in the same, on the same day. This medium, the telephone, became the message, unifying people, enlightening people in a brand new way. Then came the radio, broadcast radio, which primarily in the beginning was the radio stations were owned by churches. They wanted to get the word of Jesus Christ out to the nation. The message of Jesus Christ became the message that they were proclaiming through this medium. Shortwave radio took it to another, another step altogether. You could now talk to people in real time in other parts of the world. And then the television, information, entertainment went forth on a broad-scale basis to people who never had access to anything like this ever before. This medium became its own message. Now, of course, the World Wide Web, smartphone technology. Think about this. With FaceTime and WhatsApp, etc., you can now talk to people in real time in other parts of the world. It's, it's a unifying experience. And where we were once consumers because of the new technology, where we were once consumers consuming information by watching television or listening to the radio, now we have become producers of our own content. We can create our own information as well over mediums, for example, like the one you're listening to right now, a podcast. You see, these mediums have changed the way we behave. And studies have shown that our memory spans have been reduced as well due to digi digital technology. This medium, which is the message, is changing our behavior. News stories have been replaced with tweets, 140 characters. Entire news stories are now reduced to 140 characters. On Instagram, it's even less than that. Think about this. 
entire conversations have now been replaced with emojis. I've even heard of young kids trying to shut off the noise of their parents arguing by picking up a remote. McLuhan said that watching television, he didn't have all these other technologies, but the high-tech technology of his time was television. He said it changed the way we looked at the world. He said, quote, it's impossible to understand social and cultural changes without the knowledge of the workings of the media. And, and he prophesied, he prophesied about a coming time where electrical information devices for universal, tyrannical, womb-to-womb surveillance, these are his words, are causing a very serious dilemma between our claim to privacy and the community's need to know. McLuhan often referred to, quote, one big gossip column that is unforgiving, unforgetful, and from which there is no redemption. I mean, we can see examples of that with tweets and things you post online. They've resulted in firings, arrests, online abuse, and on and on and on. And by the way, when you delete that tweet, when you delete that Facebook post or whatever, I just have to ask you this question. Is anything really deleted forever on the Internet? Now, this quote from McLuhan in his book, um, The Medium is the Message, has been proven true multiple times in the past. I want you to listen to this one. Quote, real total war. Real total war has become information war. It is being fought by subtle electrical information media under cold conditions and constantly. There's a war going on. It's a war for your mind. And there is censorship and there is self-censorship. Now think about this. McLuhan's claims were in 1967 before social media, before the World Wide Web, before the Internet even existed. His prediction of an international, interconnected, interactive, global village is now an actuality. The medium is the message. And the message is one of conformity. You know, with the benefits of this new system, this new technology, come a dark side. There are scammers, spammers, hackers, identity, identity thieves, criminals, people plotting to do evil, to communicate worldwide in secret, buying and selling stolen materials, pornography, prostitution, human trafficking, child exploitation, slavery. It's all there on the dark side of the Internet. But I also believe that this technology will become even more dark as the days continue to facilitate the rise of the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast. But that's another podcast for another day. But right now what we're seeing is all of this is being used as a tool of propaganda that would make Marx, Lenin, and Stalin proud. And again, remember, whatever you say may be used against you. The medium now controls the message. You know, it's interesting to note that in the New Testament book of John, 
chapter 8, verse 44. This is the New International Version that I'm using here. Jesus says this about Satan. He says, quote, There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The medium now controls the message. It is one of lie, lying deceit. It is one of illusion, dark illusion. And with that in mind, allow me to close this podcast with a simple prayer. Lord, for the sake of the 70 plus million who voted for Donald J. Trump, please do not let their vote be stolen by a political party that so easily speaks the native language of Satan himself. Please, Lord, may the truth prevail and may the lying lips of the media be silenced and made to look foolish. I pray this in the name of the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Hidden headlines. Faith, family, freedom. If you like this, please subscribe. Share and tell others. More on me at briansussman.com. Until next time, God bless you, and God bless the United States of America.